I know how the world is going to end. I don't know when it will end, but I do know how it will end. I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can assure you I know how the world is going to end. And so let me inform you, contrary to what you may have heard on the news, the world will not end because of climate change melting the ice caps and heating the planet. The world will not end because of any global pandemic. The world is not going to end from nuclear warfare. The world will not end because we will live so long that our sun will finally collapse and we will all freeze to death. The world will not end because we exhaust all of our resources that are necessary for life. That's not how the world is going to end. I know how the world is going to end. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. The world will end with the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ actually concludes the second article of the Nicene Creed, which deals specifically with Jesus, the Son of God. Ever since the third week of Advent, we've been discussing primarily and only who the Son of God is. We've looked at not only who He is, but what He has done for us. And we conclude the section on the Son of God with this great future event which serves as the very completion of his mission, which is when he returns to judge the world. The creed affirms, and what we then affirm as in this church, as we affirm the creed, is that Christ will literally, physically come back to earth sometime in our future. We actually saw this last week already in one of our passages from Acts which talked about the ascension. Do you remember what the angels told the disciples? And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The angels affirm that just as Christ literally and physically ascended into heaven... He will literally and physically in the exact same way return from heaven. He ascended on a cloud of glory. He will return in glory. And Jesus himself actually emphasizes this in the Gospel of Matthew when he says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Christ will come to earth physically, literally, in glory for judgment. And we call this the second coming. The second, because it is the second time. He came once, and now he is coming again. But we have to remember, while this is a second coming, the two comings are very different. The first one was a coming of humiliation, of emptying himself, of lowering himself so that he could become a man and deal with our sin. But his second coming is not a self-emptying. It is not an act of humility. It is an act of glory. It is a powerful return. It is not a descent. It is a return in glory. It is a very different kind of coming than the first, which is why the author of Hebrews himself says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
And isn't that the case? Aren't we so excited for Jesus to come? When Christ comes again, he's not coming to, to, to deal with sin like he did the first time. He's not coming as a baby in a manger in humility. He is coming as a glorious judge to sit on a throne and judge the world, which is purifying and completing the kingdom of God. But there's a lot to fill in in this, and I think that John can help us do that. So would you turn your Bible in your Bibles to John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29 together. When you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, thus saith the Lord. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I chose this passage not only because it clearly establishes what we've already affirmed, that Christ will judge the living and the dead one day, but I think it also helps us fill in some of the important theological details that the creed just simply doesn't have the time nor the task to elaborate on. And so specifically, as as we focus today on the second coming of Christ, the judgment day of Christ, I want us to ask and answer three questions. Why Christ judges... Who Christ judges and how Christ judges. Why is it Christ who will judge? Who is it that he's coming to judge? And what's the basis of his judgment? Why is our Savior also our judge? I think these, this, this passage helps us answer these questions. Read verse 22 with me again as we begin to dive into the first question, which is why is it Christ that judges? Why Christ judges? Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So let's stop there. Clearly, the Father has made Jesus the judge. But I think the question of why is not a bad question to ask. Right? Because 
I think, maybe not all of us, but I think most of us, when you hear the word judge, to some degree, some sort of negative connotations maybe come up in your mind. Not because we dislike judges or don't trust judges, but the very act of judgment is just kind of a scary, sobering thing. Right? What are judges in our society called to do? They're called to reveal crimes and punish them. Right? When we think of judges, we think of those who punish, those who sentence. And we know that in order to be unbiased, they have to be somewhat cold and indifferent. And so sometimes we don't have necessarily the most positive connotations when we think of a judge. And so it seems sort of awkward to make Christ the judge because isn't he supposed to not be the judge but the savior? Like when I think of Christ, I don't want to think of judgment. I want to think of love and embrace and arms wide open. And he's the one who saves me from judgment. He's not my judge. He's my, he's my savior. Like why would God make my savior also my judge? Why is Christ the judge? Why has God given all judgment to the Son? Well, the text actually gives us two answers to that question. Now, they're related. You really, a better preacher than me could have probably brought them into one, but I'm going to keep them two. There's two answers to that question. And the first one, I'm going to put it in my own words and say, why is Jesus our judge? And the answer is, because he is our God. He must be our judge because he is our God. Let me explain where I'm getting that from. Look at verse 23. Right after telling us that the Father judges no one, but gives all judgment to the Son. He gives us the first reason why. Verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is amazing. So, one thing to clarify. The Bible does use the word judge in a variety of ways and in a variety of different contexts. Um, there is a sense in which everyone in this room is called to be a judge. Right? Because everyone in this room is called to know sin, identify sin, repent of sin, practice church discipline. All of these things require, to some degree, judgments on our end. And so we are all, in a sense, judges. Our society then loves to take these sort of very different contexts of the word judge and try to flatten them all into one to avoid us ever condemning them for their sin. Right, like I remember when I was a kid, there was a really popular phrase, whether it was a bumper sticker or a tattoo, or people would just say it, where they would say, only God can judge me. Right? You're not allowed to judge me because that's not your job. God is the judge, not you. Only God can judge me. I want to say there's a sense in which that's not true. Because like I said, we use the word judge in a lot of different ways. Certainly a judge in a court of law is allowed to judge you. Certainly a referee in a game that you're playing is allowed to judge you. Certainly your teacher is allowed to judge you. Certainly Christians are allowed to rebuke your behavior. So there's a sense in which this is, this is flat out not true that only God can judge depending on how you define the word judge. But there is a sense of judgment where this statement is actually very true. As it pertains to the eternal judgment of the entire universe, yes, only God can judge. I do not have the authority nor the power, nor the goodness to bring every single thing that has ever happened in all of human history before my feet and pronounce judgment. And neither do you. And neither does anyone because that requires a divine power, a divine knowledge, a divine goodness, a divine wisdom. So yes, in a cosmic sense, it's very true. Only God can judge. This is 
obvious to us. This is common sense to us. And it was common sense to Jesus' audience. Everybody understood that the final judgment on the, at the end of time could only be just and right if it is God doing the just judging. Only God can judge us. And if that's true, then what does it mean that the Father has made Jesus Christ the judge? What does that say about Jesus? That he's God. That he's God. And that's why, what is verse 22 saying? The Father is saying, I want you to understand who Jesus is. And I want you to honor him as what he is. And what is he? He is just like me. He is the same essence as me. We share an essence. We are both God. So he's saying, I want you to honor the Son just like you honor me. And what's one of the best ways I can do that? I will make him the judge of the universe because only God can be the judge of the universe. By making Christ the judge, God has further established and vindicated and proved who Christ is. He's God. And that's why we must honor him like he is God. We must treat him like he is God. And, and, and the text goes so far to say that if you don't do that, then you don't have the Father. You cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. Can't happen. If you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father who sent him. That's the role of judgment. Is it puts this relationship between the Father and Son that you either have to accept them both or reject them both. And that's why this verse, by the way, we really cannot underestimate how powerful of a proof text it is for the deity of Christ. The text literally tells us we must take this human being named Jesus and we must honor him just as we honor the Father. You have to treat this human being named Jesus the exact same way you would treat God the Father. If Jesus isn't God, then this is utter blasphemy and you should rip it out of your Bible and you should burn it. That is utter blasphemy to take a creature and treat him like God, honor him like God, worship him like God. But the reason it's not blasphemy is because Jesus is more than a creature. He's God. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to see that. He wants us to honor that in Christ. And one of the best ways he can do that is by making him judge. So why is it important for Jesus, our Savior, to also be our judge? Because he's God. It's fitting as the Son of God. But the text gives us another reason. Like I said, they're related. In a sense, they're one and the same. But I'm going to separate them. Look at verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is another answer. The first one was essentially, why has he made him the judge? Because he's the Son of God. And then he tells us a second reason. Why is he made him the judge? Because he's the son of man. What does that have anything to do with it? Well, if you recall, Jesus is referencing yet another ascension passage that we looked at last week. Jesus is referencing Daniel chapter 7. And notice this prophecy about a son of man that Daniel gave many hundreds of years before this event in John 5. In one of Daniel's night visions, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So in short, the first reason why Jesus must be our judge is because he's our God. The second reason why Jesus must be our judge is because he's our king. If he were not our judge, it would do damage to the fact that he's a king. Now, the text didn't mention a king. Where am I getting that from? Well, I'm getting it from Daniel. Because remember this. It's impossible to have a kingdom without a king. It's literally in the name. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, according to Daniel, has been given to this son of man. There is literally a human king who reigns over the kingdom of God. There is a human king who has been commissioned to subdue the enemies of God's kingdom. A human king has been given the power and dominion to establish God's kingdom, to gather it and protect it forever. And so the second reason why Jesus must be the judge of God's kingdom is because the scriptures prophesied him to be the king of God's kingdom. And this is why, by the way, even in our creed, you'll see when we go back to the the sermon slide, it attaches at the end of Judgment Day whose kingdom will never end. It almost seems out of place, but it's not. There is a very, very close connection between Judgment Day and the kingdom of God. Because when Christ comes to judge, he is purifying his kingdom and he is establishing himself as the king of this kingdom. Because in fact, when Jesus came to earth, he very much all throughout his ministry described it as coming to bring and begin and fulfill the kingdom of God. His very first message that he ever preached. Jesus had to grow up and become an adult before he did any teaching. He had to go out in the wilderness and be tested and tried and proven before he could do any teaching. And then guess what is the first words out of his mouth? Now it's time to start teaching. And what's his message? His message happens to be the word for word, the same exact message as his forerunner John. And what is it? From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God with him. And from that time, he has been slowly and increasingly expanding his kingdom all over the world. And so we need to see judgment day as Jesus' final act of implementing his kingdom. This is when he will purify his kingdom and perfect it. So in other words, Jesus must be judged because he is our God and because he is our king. That's why Christ, our Savior, must also be our judge. But this raises the next question, although maybe to a certain degree we've already let the cat out of the bag. But nonetheless, we do have to ask the question, who is it that he has come to judge? Okay, so he's the judge. Who is he judging? Now, uh, the English nerd in me technically wants to say it should actually be whom he is judging. But I wanted all the sermon points to be three letters. So we're going to stick with who, okay? So why Christ judges and who Christ judges. The creed gives an answer to that. The creed says that he will judge the living and the dead. And that's just a shorthand poetic way of saying every single person who has ever existed. Christ is the judge of every single person. Let's read verses 25 through 28 together. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I will admit that this is one of the only parts of the passage which could at least at a glance seem like it's not in harmony with the creed. 
Because the creed says that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, whereas here Christ only establishes himself as the judge of the dead. I will come to judge those who are in the tombs. Those who are in the tombs will come out, and then there will be a judgment. But certainly, when Jesus talks about judging the dead, this is actually just the same thing as saying the living and the dead. Part of the reason why Jesus is speaking only of the dead here, and we don't have time to get into these details, but throughout John 5, Jesus is trying to show how there's a sense in which eternal life and judgment has already happened. If you recall, earlier in the text he says, an hour is is coming and is now here. So judgment day is sort of the fulfillment of something that's already began. And so Jesus wants to, to really focus on this idea of judging those who are dead. Because he's not just talking about eternal judgment. He's also talking about spiritual life and spiritual judgment, which is already taking place. So he's trying to to, to picture everything in terms of resurrection. Because we sort of go through two resurrections as Christians. We go through a spiritual one on earth and then a physical one at the end. So it's important for Jesus to really focus on giving life to the dead and judging the dead. But certainly when Jesus says that an hour, a day is coming, when all who are in the tombs will come out and be judged, his audience was not thinking, so he'll judge all the dead, but whoever is alive on earth, they'll have a different judge. They're obviously not thinking that. I mean, just mathematically speaking, whenever Christ returns, the vast majority of human beings judged on that day will be those who are already dead. Right? If he were to come today, there would be 7 billion people who are living to judge. But how many billions of people have died since the days of Adam? The vast majority of people will be those who are dead whenever he comes, right? So it's, even though he doesn't say the living and the dead here, it is nonetheless, this is his way of saying, I come to judge all human beings. Everyone who has ever lived, they will come out of their tombs and I will judge each and every person. He actually says this explicitly in Matthew. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so not only was this Christ's message, but this was, by the way, also the message of the apostles. In fact, the Nicene Creed, when it says that he came to judge the living and the dead, they actually just take that directly from Scripture. They take it directly from a a sermon that the apostle Peter preached to the Jews in Acts chapter 10. Do I have it on here or not? This blank slide, I think it was supposed to have it. I apologize. I'll read it to you. This is the second week in a row. I apologize for that. This is what Peter says to the Jews in Acts 10.42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So if you don't want to take my word for it, that when Jesus says, I came to judge the dead, he means the living too, just know in other places... It is said that he came to judge the living and the dead. That he himself testified that he will judge each person. As a matter of fact, we can take it one step further. The Bible actually teaches that even fallen angels are going to come under Jesus' judgment. He is the Lord and the King over all every existing moral creature. Which is why every existing moral creature must come under his judgment. So who is he to judge? He is to judge the living and the dead. He is to judge each and every moral creature. So we've discussed why Christ is the judge. Because he is our God and our king. We've discussed who he will judge. The living and dead, meaning every single person. But this raises the most difficult aspect of the text. The most difficult theological aspect of Judgment Day. Which is 
how he judges. What is he judging? What is the basis of his judgment? And according to the text, we could say that he judges according to works. Let's read verses 28 through 29 again. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. According to verse 29, if we were to just take this verse in isolation, our final eternal destination is determined by whether we have done good or evil. And if we're being honest with ourselves... What Christ says here probably offends our evangelical sensibilities. Right? I mean, after all, we're good Protestants in this church. Alright? We don't believe that we're saved by works. We don't teach that the good news of the gospel is be a good person. That's not good news. Instead, we say along with Jesus that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. It is your faith that resurrects you. It is your faith that saves you. We agree with his apostles, the Apostle Paul, who says so many times in his epistles things like this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I have always rightly taught that the good news of the Christian gospel is that we cannot earn our salvation. We can never be good enough. But faith in Jesus, faith in the one who is good enough in our stead, that's what saves us. And that message is true. As a matter of fact, Jesus teaches us that message in our very sermon text. Look at verse 24 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. According to this verse, faith alone is the sufficient means that we pass from death to life. Jesus goes so far to say that if we simply believe in Christ, believe in God who sent Christ, that you pass out of judgment. And this is just hammered away all throughout the Gospel of John, this idea that believers, that faith is what saves us. That when you believe in Jesus, all of your sins... Every sin before, every sin in the future is forgiven and done away with and you are saved through your faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So perhaps now you can understand when I admit that for me personally, there was a time when the doctrine of judgment day became the closest reason I ever had to having a theological crisis. How can I believe in sola fide? How can I believe that we are saved by faith apart from works when nearly every single Bible verse that ever brings up judgment day speaks of being judged according to our works, speaks of heaven as a reward for goodness and hell as a judgment for sin? As a matter of fact, do you remember the language that we heard during our confession of sin and assurance of pardon? Let me remind you of just how, 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 how harsh this is to our evangelical ears. This is what Paul says to unbelieving Jews. 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. How do we make sense of judgment day, sola fide? In other words, we don't even have to think in broad categories. How do we make sense of verse 24 in light of verse 29? Jesus tells us that by our faith we have passed out of judgment. Nine, eight, seven, six, and then five verses later. By the way, if you've done good, then you'll be saved. How do we make sense of these things? Well, let me begin by telling you a few ways we can't make sense of it. We can't make sense of it by excluding believers from Judgment Day. Some have done that. Only unbelievers will go through Judgment Day, but believers will not go through Judgment Day. The idea being so unbelievers will stand before God, and if they've done good, He'll repay them. But they haven't done good, so there will be no rewards. It'll just be punishment. Now, that, that would be an easy way to get around this, but for me, the problem is that when I read the Judgment Day passages in the New Testament, many of them are actually explicitly directed to Christians. I do not believe that the the judgment passages of of Scripture exclude Christians. As a matter of fact, then our creed would be false because the creed does not say that he came to judge the, the, the wicked living in the dead, but simply the living in the dead. Judgment day is for all human beings, not just unbelievers. Let me give you just an example, a couple examples. Uh, this is from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says this, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether whether good or evil. Here, it is believers, those who are expecting to be with the Lord when they die, who are said will appear before the judgment seat to give an account of their works. So I don't think we can exclude believers from Judgment Day. Another attempt to get around this is to say that, yes, we are judged according to works, but in Christ, His works become our works, and so we're all just judged according to Christ's works, which are perfect. So that's why we have nothing but reward to receive. And yet again, there's actually some truth in that, which maybe I can elaborate on in a different time. And again, as, 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 as pleasant and lovely as that sounds... I just don't think that makes sense of the actual passages that talk about Judgment Day. Let me give you another example. That I, Well, let me read to you what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So we're talking about Christians here. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That's Paul in Romans 14, 9 through 12. To me, that passage does not sound like Paul saying that when we stand before God, he's just going to judge you on according to Christ's works. No, he's saying, stop judging your brother. Don't you know you're going to have to give an account for that? 
Don't you want to live your life as if you are going to stand before God one day? Paul is using judgment day as a motivation for holy living. He even says, each one of us will give an account of himself, not of Christ in us, of himself to God. So I see Paul exhorting us to live a certain way on the basis of the fact that even as Christians, we will stand before Christ to give an account for our lives. One more example. I, I know I probably don't need to, but this is a fun one for me as I think about my duty now as preaching. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say this, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach however you want, because your works won't be examined on judgment day anyways. Do whatever you want, Timothy. It doesn't really matter. Do you not hear him using judgment day to put the fear of God into him? You better do your job as a pastor well. Why? Because Jesus will judge you. Because you're going to have to give an account for every word that you preached. You're going to have to give an account for every counsel that you gave. I do not believe that we can just simply say, well, yeah, we'll be judged not by our works, but by Christ's works. I don't think the texts are saying that. So how do we then harmonize this relationship of verse 24 with verse 29? Well, in the few minutes I have left, let me try to just give you something to cling to. But before I do that, I want to remind something I reminded us of in Sunday school. Sometimes when the Bible says two things, and we don't know how to piece them together, our job is still to believe them even before we piece them together. We don't withhold obedience and faith until we have it all figured out. So let me just remind you of what Jesus says in verse 24. That if you believe in God, you have passed out of judgment. Okay? If you are a believer, a genuine believer in Christ... You do not have to fear the condemnation of God. You should, if you are a true Christian in this room, you should not be afraid of hell. Don't be afraid of hell. You cannot go to hell. It can't happen. That's the promise of God. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You should not be fearful of condemnation. You should not be fearful of eternal judgment. You're in Christ. You have a mediator. Your faith has saved you. Mark it down. Stamp it down. Get that in our minds. Don't let anything else dissuade you from that. We need to believe that before we can move forward. That's the gospel. You're saved by grace through faith. End of story. But now that we've got that settled... Let's try to bridge the gap a little bit with this verse 29. And I think we can do so by understanding a couple different things about this, the nature of good works. First, to, to understand this relationship, I want to encourage us to think of good works not as merits or causes, but as consequences and testimonies. Good works are not merits. They are not causes, but they are consequences, which then makes them testimonies. So here's what I mean by that. Your good works do not merit heaven for you. It's not as if God says, look at all this good. I, be I better pay up. You've earned this. That's not what Jesus is talking about in judgment passages. So your good works do not cause you to go to heaven. They do not earn your way into heaven. Your good works cannot do that. 
However, good works are the necessary consequence of salvation. They have to follow from those who have been saved. So they can therefore serve as testimonies of your salvation, as evidence and proof. So they don't, your good works don't make you deserving of heaven. Being in Christ is what makes you deserving of heaven. But your good works are the proof, they are the vindication or the evidence, the testimony that Christ has indeed done that, that he's made you worthy of heaven. And so this is why they can serve as the basis of God's judgment. In a court of law, what do you look at in order to make a verdict? Evidence. You look at evidence. Christ is rendering the verdict that you have been made right with God, that you have eternal life, that you have passed out of judgment. And what's the vindication? What's the proof of that? Your works. So the good works are not the cause of your right relationship with God, but they are the evidence that Christ uses to establish and vindicate your right relationship that you have by faith alone. Does that make sense? And so this is why we as, as evangelical Protestants, we can say with a full chest that obviously there's exceptions, infants and the thief on the cross, but for the ordinary person, you cannot be saved without good works. That is a Protestant belief that's in our confessions, that's in our history. You cannot be saved without good works. But what we are not saying when we say that is that your good works earn your salvation. We are saying they are a necessary consequence and testimony of the salvation that you have by faith. And so the beauty of this is that in this way, judgment according to works not only no longer contradicts faith alone, it actually complements it. Calvin is the one who made this point to me first. I want to read his quote and then I'll explain it. Calvin says, what he was, he was the, the argument that was thrown in his face was people were telling Calvin, you can't believe in sola fide because every passage about judgment speaks of eternal life. It speaks of heaven as a reward. Those who have done good, they get this. God is rewarding us for our good works. So how can you believe in sola fide when heaven is a reward for our good works? And here's what Calvin said. That rewards for good works is so far from overturning justification by faith alone that it rather confirms it. For in the first place, how comes it that God finds in us anything to reward, but because he has bestowed upon us his spirit? Now we know, according to Ephesians, that the spirit is the earnest and pledge of adoption. Secondly, how comes it that God confers so great honor on imperfect and sinful works such as ours, but because after having by free grace reconciled us to himself, he accepts our works without any regard to merit by not imputing the sins which cleave to them. Beautiful quote. Let me break it down for you. Calvin's point is twofold. He's saying, here's why God can reward our works and not contradict sola fide. Because the works that God is rewarding, where did they come from? According to the Bible, they came from the Holy Spirit. So you cannot have any works to reward without the Holy Spirit. But what does Ephesians call the Holy Spirit? The pledge of our adoption. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit in you is proof that God has saved you. So here's Calvin's point. It is impossible for works to be the grounding of my salvation. Because salvation has to already have happened before I can produce good works. So works cannot cause salvation. Rather, salvation has to cause good works. The fact that I even have anything to reward is proof that I've already been saved. And then the second point he makes is even the works that we do from the Spirit in our fallen humanity are still imperfect. They are not deserving of eternal life. Yet, 
God gives them eternal life as a reward. Is God unjust? No, it's because in Christ, he purifies the sins off of our good works. So when God rewards you with, for your good works in heaven, he is not, you're not earning your salvation. Rather, what has happened is you've already been saved. The Spirit has produced works which you have tainted. Christ purifies them. And then the Spirit and the Christ give God beautiful, perfect works which he is now pleased to reward. And that is a very different story than God saying, pay up or you can't get in. The eternal life that Christ gives to us through faith, it creates these works which the Spirit makes that Christ purifies and then they serve as a vindication and a proof, a testimony on Judgment Day of what God has done in us by faith. I think the best way to conclude is to show us, I think, a passage we've already seen in church today that I think ties these things two together very well. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So mark it down. Your faith is how you access the saving grace of God. Faith alone. You're saved by faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. You are not saved by your works. Put it down. But do works have any role to play at all? For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. So we're already in him. We're already saved. And then what happens? We are created in him to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God rewards your good works. He judges you according to your works on judgment day because they are what you were created and saved to do. And they vindicate God's work in you. God has prepared good works for those saved by faith to walk in. So Jesus judges us according to our works. He's really judging us according to our faith as they are the outward evidence of that. Now, I know we've gone long, and I know that talking about things like standing before God and having our works examined can be somewhat discomforting, but I want to leave you, I know it's been long, but let me just leave you with two reasons why this really should fill you with a lot of hope. I, I want us to leave today with hope. The glory of the doctrine of judgment according to works by Christ the God and King. The glory of this doctrine is that means that on judgment day, the glory of God's kingdom will not merely be declared. It will be proven. God is not merely going to declare to all of creation, I have done a great thing with my kingdom. He's going to prove it. Each and every one of us are going to see God's handiwork. You know the feeling, the awe you get when you look up at the sky and you see the stars? You see the glory of God's handiwork? That is nothing compared to the glory that we will feel on Judgment Day when he holds up his church and vindicates her and shows her that she is more glorious and more holy, shining brighter than any star or any nebula or any galaxy you can imagine. We will see the vindication and handiwork of God as he actually made his church beautiful. He didn't just call us beautiful. He makes us beautiful. And he's going to prove that on Judgment Day. Everyone will see the glory of what God has done in his Christian church. The glory of his kingdom will not be declared. It will be shown. The devil will see it. The wicked will see it. We will see it. But another reason why judgment according to works ought to comfort us is this. Consider how many ways on earth judgment goes wrong. Consider the people who have been punished when they shouldn't have been people who were not punished when they should have been. Consider the people who got way too harsh of a sentence. 
compared to the people who got way too lenient of a sentence. Judgment goes wrong in this earth all the time. Isn't it so comforting to know that one day there will be an act of judgment that will be perfect? Every sin will finally be dealt with. Every sin will finally be called to account for. No sin will go without vengeance. And on top of that, no good work will go without reward. That's one of the things I've been really encouraging Marty and his mother. Is they have been... Marty and his mother have done so much for Laura that nobody sees. Nobody. But God sees it. And I'm sure each and every person in this room, you have done things, good and righteous things, that would have been easier not to do. And no one saw it. You got no credit. You got no reward. You got no benefit. You will. You will. He, God forgets no sins. He also forgets no righteousness. Justice is coming. True, perfect justice. Reward for all of our good works is coming. And justice for all of the world's sin is coming. And it will be perfect. Isn't that good news? In other words, what I like to say is that judgment day is the balm to our souls which are injured and broken every time we look out and see a world of sin and brokenness. Jesus will make it right. Vengeance does not belong to us because it belongs to Christ and he will pour out vengeance and he will reward good works. We have the hope. It's not the fear, it's the hope of knowing that Jesus will one day come to judge the living and the dead. And he must be the one who comes because he is our God and he is our King. 